0: Hey, Karen DeBeat, we need a promo. You know, like where we talk about what we do on our podcast. On our sugar coated murder podcast? Like how we love to bake and talk about murder? That's what we need to talk about. There you go. I
1: think we've talked about it. Y'all find us on all your favorite listening apps. Stay sweet. And don't murder. Because if you kill people, we will talk about you. Hello there. The film we are discussing today is considered one of the most controversial films of the 1970s. It tackles themes of unrelenting racism, classism, and toxic masculinity. While it is often noted that the filmmakers' intent was to open the country's eyes to what was going on in their own neighborhoods, its message was often misconstrued by its audiences, thus leading it to become a polarizing piece of new Hollywood cinema. We offer a content warning for discussions of the film's racism, sexism, drug abuse, and violence, all in the name of positive deconstruction. We are not censoring language in this episode. We appreciate your participation in the episode and understand if this one is not for you. Thank you again for listening and enjoy the discussion. Try to run away from me. So
2: I hit him with my shoe again!
1: How far you gone? LA. Not many people
3: stop for a guy these days. I'm afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, Mr. Now wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind this. do take a
1: card. Ah? Uh, I did
3: You can keep it. I've got 51 left.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the Cult Worthy Classic, a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult cinema made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and this is the Cult Worthy Classic. Now, this week's episode is an interesting one as I've brought my friends Jack and Joe from the Derazzled podcast onto the show to talk about 1970s controversial film Joe starring Peter Boyle, Susan Sarandon, and Dennis Patrick. It was directed by John G. Avildsen, who would go on to direct Rocky and The Karate Kid and as an interesting look at the blue-collar mentality of cities in the early 70s and late 60s. Mentalities that were battling with counterculture and not being able to let go of racist ideologies. But what makes this film even more fascinating is how it was misconstrued by audiences upon release. It was meant to be like this open message of this is what's going on in your backyard. This is what's going on in your neighborhood bar. This is what your uncle is up to. And in some parts of the country, audiences took this as a championship film supporting racism, violence, and anti-counterculture. So to tackle the polarizing views of this film, once again, my friends Jack and Joe of Derazzled, enjoy the conversation. And after a long-awaited return, two of my favorite guests from the early days of the podcast here to talk about... One of the most controversial, if not most controversial films I've covered on this show, 1970s Joe. I've got Joe and Jack from DeRazzled. How you guys doing? Hey, Antonio. Hey, fantastic. I'm doing great. Uh, I am so
0: excited to talk about this film yeah. because I've never talked to somebody
2: about it and had them have already watched it. I think the fact that like we literally lived together and and, like routinely watch all sorts of bullshit together. The the fact that we never got around to this is mind boggling to me. But also I'm thrilled that we're getting the chance to do it now. Like this is like like, I'm still kind of it's been it's been like a week since we watched it and I'm still just kind of like shaken. Yeah, it's it's also
0: one of those movies that (laughs) you can't really recommend everybody. That's that's probably why I haven't uh, told a lot of people to, to watch it.
1: Well, and it also plays into the reception of the movie back when it came out because we'll get into it, but this was a film that was released with a very specific mindset and a very specific message, and part of this movie's legacy is that it was often misconstrued by its audience and taken in two very different ways. It's a very polarizing movie, even that was not, according to legend, the intention of the filmmakers or the actors but that's the way the audience took it. I kind of feel the same way with, um, oh, what was that movie that came out uh, about 10 years ago? The American Sniper movie. With, oh yeah. yeah, the Chris mm-hmm. Kyle movie. Yeah. with uh, Yeah. Uh, again, that was a film that I just went in watching as a film. The people I saw it with were watching it as a film. And then to hear it talked about in ways that did not even fit into the mindset that I was in when I saw that film, like, oh, that's what you got out of it? Okay, I guess that's what the country thinks on the other side. So this was one of those films that does it as well.
0: As somebody who grew up in a, a really conservative area um, and still is surrounded by a lot of conservative folk, I didn't even go near American Sniper because I, <laughs> I would heard of it as a very like
2: glorizing uh nationalism american nationalism yeah, almost
1: like a propaganda type film yes it
2: definitely had that kind of vibe around it at, at the time i think i think i steered clear of that one as well when it came out um but yeah it, it is fascinating though to hear people like the way people talk about that and to think about joe in in uh in reference to that is almost eerie it's it's it is like the parallels kind of shaking as well yeah. This is a word I keep saying over and over again Yeah, par-
1: par- parallels and political climate. Those two phrases are going to come up quite a bit, I'm sure, in this conversation. Before oh, yeah. we get too deep into that, though, yes. let's catch up because I haven't seen you guys for a hot minute. So you yeah. just finished season one of Derazzled.
2: Yes. Yep. See, uh, season one's completely in the can. We released the last of the uh, deleted scenes material that we had Uh what, like a little over a week ago now like and uh yeah yeah people have been really cool about that and have really seemed to have been enjoying everything and we keep getting you know just new listens and new attention on everything uh since i'm i'm excited to see uh how people like what we have coming up the pike soon and i'm
1: happy that you haven't canceled it because that was uh <laughs> 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 that was in the in, in the air for a second i think that was just being sarcastic but at the same time right when we did that episode back in february there was some controversy with the Razzies and Bruce Willis that happened yeah, almost one. immediately yeah. after. And so mm-hmm. I was thinking like, oh shit, are they going to cancel the Razzle? <laughs> I can, We kind of
0: rebranded it a little bit for the second season. We're still covering Razzie movies. We're still fixing them. Um, we're going to spend a little bit more time analyzing film as a culture uh, a little bit more this season. We we've split each month into uh, – the first episode will be our traditional episodes where we look at a Razzie winner. Uh, And then the second episode will be uh, what we're calling the second unit episode. Um, And we're going to be doing a bunch of different stuff with that.
2: Yeah. So I've, I've been, the second unit was kind of my baby. Uh, and at first, it was just kind of like an excuse for us to do like to cover random stuff that would just kind of pop up and uh, like, be interesting to us or to our audience. That's kind of how, like in the first season, the recasting the Super Mario movie came about or, <laughs> uh, or you know, a few other things that we did, like you know, the, the weird superhero nonsense that we did at various points. Uh, but this this season is going to start becoming a more uh, a more structured and researched uh, show within with uh, in and of itself. So I'm excited to kind of do some digging into some of the other categories in the Razzies, uh, some further like historical critiques of the Razzies themselves uh, and into just other broader film topics Uh, in particular right now. The one I'm really digging into is uh, development hell and, uh, and what, like what happens with those films that kind of get stuck in limbo for seemingly forever. And what went wrong with them, what could have happened with them, like what might've been, Uh or if they did eventually come out uh examining what happened there. Well, I mean, uh, so sound of thunder,
1: like we covered was one of those yeah, movies. That so, was yeah. one of those. Yeah. It was, was fun to talk about. I can't wait to hear what you was. guys dig up. I, you know, I'm already kind of a nut job having two shows already. I had an idea <laughs> for a third one, which I am going to, maybe pass on to someone else that I've made friends with in the podcast universe. I have literally five crates of entertainment weekly magazines dating from (laughs) 1991 (laughs) to 2005. And that's amazing. Every once in a while I go back and I dig into these and look into the like real talk section where they were talking about upcoming projects and casting news And I just see all of these films that could have been that either never were or were changed last minute and turned into something else. So one of them from like 1997, I found in the Real Talk section, Michael Mann producing a film called Collateral to star Robert De Niro (laughs) and Al Pacino in their reuniting film. And I was like, I would have watched the shit out of that again. Yeah. Yeah. Where is the multiverse where that movie exists and how do I get there? So, yeah, I think I'm going to pass that one else. But, yeah, Development Hell sounds like something that is right in my wheelhouse. All right, guys. So, Joe.
3: Don't it make you want to go to war
2: once more? Hey, Joe. Why the devil did we go to war? Ladies and gentlemen. We'd like you to meet Joe. This is what the American press say. The movie Joe must surely rank in impact with Bonnie and Clyde, Time Magazine.
3: Money don't mean nothing to them. Motorcycles, marijuana. You got love, you don't need this stuff. How did he fall in love? A hippie pimp. Lone Ranger. Cowboys and Indians. Hop along Cassidy. Not really fags, but close. What he liked. I just have- a little on the side once in a while. I'll drink to that. He looks like a and grew. Joe, do me a favor. Give us all a break.
1: 1970, directed by John G. Albertson, and let's talk about him for a second because this is 1970. He's a young filmmaker getting his name out there, but he's still a few years away from what I would consider his biggest triumph which was Rocky. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Rocky was kind of like the movie that changed movies in a sense. Like it was bringing that hero story to the big screen underdog story that really just kind of changed how movies were made after that to know that was the same guy that made this film is just mind blowing.
0: It's wild. (laughs) It didn't occur to me. I'd watched both Rocky and Joe separately and only having watched it this time that I realized they were the same director (laughs) <laughs> but knowing that the aesthetic of the films, those two films are are pretty similar. The way it's shot, the kind of blue-collar people that it focuses on. I wouldn't say Rocky's a particularly political
1: movie, no. but it's very much of that time. And one of the things we can talk about him before we jump into the story, especially with I'd say his his technique and his eye for framing, I felt a lot of kind of like late 60s, early 70s, Robert Altman and his style especially with the amount of Hmm. pans and zooms, especially in scenes where Joe is in, like there there is kind of like an uneasiness of how he frames and shoots those scenes. The rest of the film is pretty much shot statically or like one Hmm. shot, two shot with people. And then Joe, there's a lot more movement and camera work. It's kind of like in Altman's films like Nashville and MASH where when there's like character development moments, it's a very static shot then in scenes where there is a lot more action and narrative, he gets kind of crazy with those pans and zooms. And I felt a lot of that same mm-hmm. energy in this one.
2: Yeah. You do kind of get that that vibe. Uh, Nashville is a good example. Uh, I, I I had thought about that a little bit as well, uh, which I actually, man, I haven't watched that since like undergrad. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I miss it entirely, but I believe you.
1: <laughs> and you can believe Joe. There's two of us talking about it.
2: Uh, yeah. No, I, I definitely agree that, uh, when Joe is on screen, that unease does come in and is very noticeable in the visual style, which I think, I think is extremely fitting considering how much of a turn he puts on the events of this film.
1: And also just the fact that we have some really amazing performances, early performances from some of the actors. So, To kind of go through the cast of characters, we've got Susan Sarandon in her very first film. She is like a very key player in the film, but one of the things that this film does is that it changes the narrative of the film from character to character throughout. Our title character, Joe, doesn't show up until like 30 minutes into the film. So we really are yeah, it takes a while. following three different stories and her, the film's introductory story is hers and her boyfriend, Frank, who are just a pair. He's a drug dealer and she is just this poor girl who you can tell came from an upper class family who is living in Skid Row for who knows what reason. More than likely some kind of parental conflict or maybe a political conflict forcing her mm-hmm. out onto the street again relevant to today's time. Very much so. Yeah. The, like
2: the dialogue kind of alludes to her starting to make inroads to reconciling with her family or like, or like uh, restarting that relationship a little bit. There's clearly been some kind of break there. That's caused her to be in this situation with Frank for what seems to be a while. And Susan
0: Sarandon's really the only character in the movie that you can go away feeling good about uh, as far as you like her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Frank's not very likable. Her dad's not particularly likable. Joe is—you should not like him, but I feel like he's kind of a, a
2: Patrick Bateman character where people like him, but they shouldn't. Right. Which you t- actually, Jack, you told me a story before we started watching the film that Peter Boyle, mm-hmm. like, went to actually see a screening, and that he was uneasy with the way that that yeah. some of the crowd were re- were responding to Joe. Half the audience kind of. Getting the counterculture side of
0: it. Uh, And then you have the other side that we're watching it like an episode of Archie Archie Bunker.
1: Archie Bunker with a machine gun. I love that episode. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, poor meathead. Oh my God. Shouldn't have it that way. (laughs) And there's something to be said about, you know, this is put out by the canon group before Golan Globus, but this is definitely, this is pre Death Wish. This is pre street vigilante so yeah you're right i think that there was probably some kind of appetite for a film like this especially in the counterculture of the 60s going into the 70s you've got the boomer crowd now that would have been younger than watching this and you would have had the greatest generation who were probably more in the peter boyle and dennis patrick mm-hmm. mindset In the theater at the same time, watching the same film, and you're getting those two different political messages. So again, polarizing. This film only works the way it does because of when it was released. If this would have come out in the 80s, it would have probably just been pawned off as exploitation. Do you think if it
0: were released today, how do you think audiences would would react?
1: Before I answer that, maybe we should talk more about what Joe... And Dennis Patrick's characters really are about in the plot because there is. Right, right, right. There is a lot to this film that, you know, I, I'm willing to bet that most of my listeners are more on the liberal side of the agendas as I am. Um, <laughs> which I can tell you this, I, I, I can pinpoint it. A couple weeks ago, I released a Pride episode about closeted yes. actors and filmmakers in Hollywood. When I released that episode, I immediately lost almost 100 Twitter followers. No shit. Wow, I am really not even joking. Now, it didn't get as many listens as my other episodes do, which that's fine. Mm. Some are hot. Some are cold. But the combination of the two, I was like, okay, I think I just lost an audience or a crowd of followers because I released a Pride episode. And I'm totally fine with that. I have no reservations yeah, of like, that at all like that. <laughs> but it really is interesting that that was a response that I wasn't expecting and this kind of episode about a film like this and probably how we are going to talk about it it mm. might do the same which again I'm fine with but again I think this is a film that people need to watch need to discover and need to equate it to what their political standing is right now in this day and age we are introduced to this film in in steps and layers it's like a casserole. Yeah, we're starting off with the, the youth at the very top. We've got We've got this kind of counterculture, drug culture, hippie culture, and we've got this guy Frank. He's a drug dealer. You don't really know if he loves Susan Sarandon's character. I think he's mm-hmm. just used to having her around, and it's nice to have someone that feeds your ego, and she definitely does that. But you can even tell that she is trying to be a little bit maternal to him as well, even with their drug consumption. She's even saying, well, how about we just smoke for a while so we don't blow through the hard (laughs) stuff too fast? I was like, wow. She's very conscious and maternal about their drug usage. But he's just like, no, man, we're going to go party. We're going to get this out on the street and we're going to build up the cookie jar so we can last for a long time. I don't know what voice that is, but it's just in my head what that (laughs) voice is. Don't forget the literal bowl of pills. It's a literal bowl of pills <laughs> and it literal literal cookie jar of of heroin and cocaine. I mean, yep. <laughs> he's got he's got the Hunter S. Thompson starter yeah. kit in their little hotel room. A little a little
2: bit, yeah. <laughs> like you like you would be like you would be understandably or it would be understandable to ha- to like mix him up with like somebody in the early beat movement or something along mm. those lines or like it's complete lack of shyness about drug use the i mean perhaps eagerness about his drug use the desire to be just this starving uh artist uh, to just cut loose and create with abandon in in a in a small room cut off from the rest of the world is like, he, like this is like, this is a character that we, that people have romanticized and thought about and created in various you know, in various incarnations and it's just it's it's interesting to see this take on it where he's a, a little slimier. Yeah. Yeah, a little yeah, exactly.
1: And I think that they were probably on, I'm not going to say the up and up, but it seemed like they had found a nice like flow to their relationship. And what kind of puts mm-hmm. some pressure on it is when she tells him that she's been trying to make amends, like Jack said, with her parents who yes. are upper class conservative parents who obviously do not approve of her lifestyle. I mean, who would, but especially that dynamic. So what kind of gets the ball rolling here is she takes just a bad combination of drugs while they're getting high in their apartment, and as he's out there making a deal, she kind of is like wandering through the city, goes into a drugstore, and the drugs catch up. She ODs in the drugstore, which is a very interesting scene as well because the response from the drugstore owner to the police captain, even though it's a very small moment, it does help amplify the idea of the counterculture at the time because he's saying it almost like he's joking he's like we got another one she's a cutie oh you're a real hoot yeah. sergeant like there's no empathy there whatsoever it's like i got a od and girl in my drugstore come get her out
2: yeah like like the like there's no hurry there's no there's no concern for her actual well-being it's just like all right,
1: got to deal with this garbage again. Yeah, well, this time it happened in my store, so let's let's clean mm-hmm. it up. Let's sweep her out the door. But what it does do is it brings her parents into play, uh, played by uh, Dennis Patrick and Audrey Clare. Dennis Patrick, I, I really never knew him from anything. I think he was a TV actor, but this is a guy that is perfectly cast, in my opinion, because he has that executive, upper-class New Yorker look to him. Like, this is the guy... Who is running board meetings, you can just tell, which is what really makes that dynamic between him and his daughter more more explosive. Because when he gets to the hospital with the wife and sees her in the bed, that she's OD'd, just when he thought they were making progress with their rekindling of their relationship, it kind of puts him into like this this panic slash anger mode. And he's beginning to feel emotions that you can tell he's never felt before, even in wartime, which comes up later. So he goes to the apartment to get her stuff, and while he's there, Frank shows up, and there is a conflict between him and Frank, which we're not gonna like go beat by beat. Let's just say that Dennis Patrick commits a crime that really just changes his life forever and propels the story forward. Now, what did you guys think about that character change and how that whole scene played out?
0: I kind of knew a little bit about the movie going in, but up until that point, it almost looked like it was going to be a film about Susan Sarandon and her drug dealer boyfriend, Frank. Uh, So to take that hard left away from that narrative Mm -hmm. was really exciting.
2: Yeah, I agree that like that moment, that's where we felt like we really started to hit the ground running with with this movie both in terms of the like it, learning to expect more of the unexpected and in terms of uh like the real stakes that are at hand here cuz you really like you feel the conflict through that discussion where uh where like the dad is trying to trying to be as polite as he possibly can for as long as he possibly can <laughs> yeah. until he's just like, he can't take it anymore with this guy and he's going to try and just leave and let it go. But then he snaps, like he's pushed just a little bit too far and then everything becomes unhinged.
1: Yeah. Everything becomes unhinged and in a panic, you know, he, he makes everything look like it was committed by a criminal in the neighborhood or some kind of drug bust gone bad and he steals the Hunter S. Thompson starter kit drug bag (laughs) from the apartment and puts it in his trunk, which again, it can play on so many levels because if I found a bag of drugs, if that was me, the last place I was going to put it in my trunk and leave it in my trunk, it speaks to the whole idea of white privilege where he has no fear or worries about being pulled over in this neighborhood in that car looking the way he does.
2: Yeah, it clearly never even crosses his mind that he could be at the whim of the police in this area or that he'd be in significant trouble if somebody catches him with this just bag of narcotics, (laughs) like just
1: not even a concern. And the ideas of white privilege being around today, I mean, this is 1970. Obviously, the privilege was a lot greater back then than it is today because nobody was talking about it. But this is like a good kind of like timestamp. In, in the social structure of America that, oh, no, this this is absolutely relevant now. Fifty two years later, still incredibly relevant, painfully relevant,
2: <laughs> just extremely right in the forefront of a lot of things. <laughs> and still a lot of people completely lose their minds if you try to bring it up in any way, shape
1: or form. Now, this is where we now get introduced to our title character, Joe, played by Peter Boyle. And, you know, I'm going to let you guys break down this scene because I've been talking long enough about getting us up to this point. So now we're into act two, the introduction of Joe. Tell me what you all thought about Joe and the way they decided to introduce this character. So I think we immediately had like a like a a shared flashback
2: (laughs) uh, to uh, when 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 Jack and Belinda moved into their last apartment, I helped them and. Uh, after we had finished, Jack and I walked around the corner to this little like hole in the wall bar uh, that we had driven past like time and time again living around here, but had never actually been inside. So we went in, sat down, grabbed a beer and immediately the things <laughs> that started coming out of people's mouths, you're like. Oh, I'm not just like the number of like the number of just like casually flung uh, homophobic and racist slurs, uh, just the, the eagerness of, uh, of their support for, uh, I think there was a talk about, I think like escalating their sports fandom into like violent rhetoric and whatnot, just like really just like getting out of control way too easily. Speaking of white privilege, (laughs) I was,
0: I felt that the only reason we were. Quote unquote, safe there was because we were very white oh yeah he, no we were or, pale, we very white pale like as hell it. yes uh but we watching that scene we uh we see mostly joe the character joe speaking not really giving anybody else a chance to speak so all of that uh racist violent rhetoric is coming from him
2: yeah not on monologuing yeah it's, yeah welfare
3: they get all that welfare money they even get free rubbish you think they use them Hell no, the only way they make money is making babies. They sell the rubbers, and then they use the money to, to buy booze. Nobody has a right to booze unless he earns the money. It ought to be a law. You don't work, you don't drink. Set fire to the cities, burn a few buildings, you get paid for it. Throw a few bombs, you get money and jobs. If you can't read, you got a better chance of getting hired. A lot of good my education did me. And the kids. The white kids. Money don't mean nothing to them. Motorcycles, marijuana, fight out of records. God, oh, a dollar ain't worth shit. I get a 30 cent an hour increase. My wife bought better hamburger last year. Not like those kids in Chicago. Chicago. They got no respect for the president of the United States. A few heads get bashed and they act like they got in the ass. They're liberals. 42% of all liberals are queer. That's a fact.
0: It's like a 5 10 minute long monologue of him just being racist. Just being drunkenly <laughs> racist. Uh, because Peter Boyle is so charismatic and kind of goofy,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you, you do feel like a draw to this character. Uh, maybe not in like a feeling a
1: connection but you want to watch his energy yes and this is where i won't give you a hot take on this film because by no means do i condone anything that joe says or does in this movie but the movie does create a brilliant sense of empathy towards this character because while you may not agree about anything he says, or you might, and if you do, you probably aren't listening to this episode right now. Yeah. <laughs> right. But you want to know why. It, it, he His performance makes you want to know the why. And what happened to Joe? And what was Joe's upbringing? Because, like you said, the charismatic performance of Peter Boyle on this, like if this was someone, let's say like George C. Scott or... Right. <laughs> Someone a little bit more aggressive. It wouldn't play the same way. And I don't think I could actually no. stomach that kind of performance the way the film plays out. But there is an empathy to Joe. And you can tell by his lack of friends. And like you said, the people in the bar, it almost appears like no one even like agrees with him or they just deal with him. Like, oh, it's just Joe again and he's just drinking. The bartender even gives him a quarter to go play a song in the jukebox, just so he'll stop ranting. Which yeah, only, just to get him to shut up
2: for a but second, but it only prompts him to start use. rant.
1: It prompts him to rant more because he doesn't like the music in the jukebox for racist reasons again. So, it's such an interesting introduction to a character because you know you don't know where this movie's going. You you leave this
0: almost like crime thriller, not thriller, but crime uh, drama narrative. And you're introduced to this character, unlike any that we've seen before at that, up to that moment, that in a way you're almost laughing with how uncomfortable it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Like I wouldn't say it's like an out and out comic moment, but it's such a tone shift. And I think that him being this representation of blue collar working class makes him a little bit more sympathetic than the character we've, we've now latched onto,
2: which is, um,
1: Dennis Patrick's character. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, I think we, we also get a lot of that empathy, I think through Joe's wife, mm-hmm. uh, the, the fact that we get to know her as well as we do, and that she lets slip all these little details about how, how the kids are never home and how like, the way, like, the way she reacts to and handles Joe throughout like their, inter- like their interactions one-on-one and whenever they have, um, Susan Sarandon's parents over for dinner like the like the the actual marital dynamic between them really reveals a like not just not just a troubleness and a toxicity from him but also a lot of sadness like there's a clear there's a clear longing there for him for for uh for a connection with pe- with uh with people that he feels like he should respect him and given his whole approach to that to to those kind of relationships is toxic and kind of fucked up and probably causing some uh, trauma down the line for those uh, for his sons. But we still get those views. We get those little hints of things to help flesh that character out a little bit more
1: and there is kind of like a proto Archie and Edith Bunker dynamic to that marriage. Mm-hmm. You can tell just by the way it's written way it's performed, like, she knows what food to cook him, so there are no arguments. She even gives him two boxes of Ritz crackers before dinner time because she knows yeah. homeboy needs to eat something. Uh, maybe that's her tactic of like giving the quarter to the jukebox. She's like, maybe I don't want to yeah. <laughs> hear your bullshit today, so eat these crackers. That's the way I took oh, it. Oh, man.
2: But, I almost forgot about the crackers. <laughs> just I, I I about died whenever he's like like when he starts crushing that box and she just pulls out another one. It's like Wait, what the hell <laughs> at the ready. Like, this
1: is your routine? Yeah, at the ready. But then there is a moment <laughs> in that where it's actually sweet because he wants to know about her soap operas. And there's like a good yeah. five-minute scene where he's actually interested in the soap operas because I think there's some empathy towards her that she's just at home watching soap operas all day because the kids are gone. And it's just time to make dinner. And the way I look at that is that is kind of like that whole juxtaposition of the American dream. Is like, is this the American dream? Is this what people are working 40 plus hours a week for? For $4 mm-hmm. an hour? Because he talks about that in the bar scene where his rants are about people on welfare. And I'm not even going to repeat a lot of that stuff. But <laughs> right. his whole his whole kind of motivation is the fact that the American dream is gone because of other races coming to neighborhoods and kids not caring and counterculture. And what happened to American pride? I mean, it's the same thing that we're hearing on the TV right now.
2: Right. You can just imagine Ronald Reagan in a theater in the back row, just with a notebook <laughs> going, yes, this sounds good.
1: <laughs> Do that I... again. I like that voice. <laughs> it's like kind of a Peter Lorre meets it was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sounded like Ronald building... Reagan was about to plug in the electrodes into Frankenstein's neck. <laughs>
0: i i do love that moment where he talks to her about her soap operas it gives his character this additional layer where you could have just played him where he's a straight asshole to his wife and to women in general Mm -hmm. um and he is giving him just that little moment of him interacting with her and being genuinely interested in her uh gives him a depth that like i I don't want more of this character, but I would, I
2: would absolutely watch like a four hour movie of this version. That's what David Attenborough was just like <laughs> watching and narrating. <laughs> oh, God. You do kind of get this kind of this, this view into like what it's like to be in within Joe's expectations of how things should work in those moments, you know, like, cause that, cause that's kind of, that's how I kind of think about what's going on there. Like his wife is meeting his expectation of, what a wife should be doing Mm -hmm. while her husband's away. And so he's, he's thrilled to hear about that considering what um, all the problems he has with the world at large. So to come back and hear all about those soap operas, that's uh, a a creature comfort for him.
1: What kind of moves the story along into the second and third act is we've got uh, Mr. Compton played by Dennis Patrick. He's in the bar having a couple drinks, trying to realize and make sense of what had just happened in the drug dealer's apartment he calls mm-hmm. the hospital, finds out that the daughter is still in a coma. So he sits back down. Meanwhile, Peter Boyle is still ranting. And he says, hey, what do you think about these these drug dealer kids? And Compton tells him about the crime that was just committed. And Joe's immediate response was, well, good for you. You're joking, right? Are you not joking? Yeah. Or you're not joking? <laughs> hey, you had me for a minute. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. clever, you. I like you. He buys him a drink and there's this rapport. And so when we find out that uh, on the news and the newspapers what really happened in that apartment and Joe reads it, and he already knows the name of this guy, he seeks him yep. out. And Compton thinks that he's trying to blackmail him, but instead, he wants to be his friend. And this weird kind of friendship begins, this the <laughs> fucking weirdest meat cute I've ever seen <laughs> in a movie begins with these couple, two <laughs>
2: like
0: buddy movie
2: odd, uh, odd couple meets what about bob yeah. but
1: but it but it becomes amicable i mean what's funny is i watched i rewatched this last week and immediately when i was done i watched the producers for another podcast that's coming up and i was <laughs> nice. like oh, th- th- these meat cutes in the 60s are so <laughs> fucked up <laughs> Because in that one, Zero Mustel is about to, like, literally jump on Gene Wilder. and Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, back to Joe. So, yeah, so now they're they're buddies. And and this is my perception of this. And I want to know what your guys's is. So, you know, now in these days, we talk about toxic masculinity. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of that has to do with how much of it we see on social media and TV. And there's all these gym bros and and protein bros and all this stuff like that. Mm-hmm we didn't have that back then and this film kind of touches on the idea of like the fragility of masculinity back at this time because you've got these guys that were war heroes these you got these guys that like saved their country and fought for their country and now they are bored one is a bored upper class ad exec and the other one is just a union guy that works you know 40 hours a week for 4 dollars an hour but there's really nothing to his life there's this weird exchange of masculinity, and I want to say class reconstruction. Compton mm-hmm. feels almost more at home now with like this lower class guy who's got these weird ideas that we really don't know Compton's p- political political ideas or agenda, but you know they can't be too far off from Joe's because they're going bowling together and shit. And then you've got Joe right. yep. who admires, and maybe in some ways envies the privilege and money that Compton has, but mostly he's excited that this guy who you would never expect to throw a punch committed this crime against this counterculture drug dealer. And so he's almost like fanboying him. And these two have like this new weird mutual respect for each other that's really toxic, really fucked up, and it's what drives the rest of the movie. But like we were talking about earlier, there's something almost charming to it
2: it is yeah like Compton genuinely gets sucked into all of it like it like Joe exhibits almost a sort of hero worship toward him and lionizes him in a way that I, I don't think it's possible for him to to experience in his work life or his married life I
3: know what you've been thinking <laughs> you've been thinking I was going to put the old squeeze on you didn't you? uh-huh I said, you've been thinking, right? Yes. Oh, Oh, it had occurred to me. Yeah, well. I could blackmail you. Hey. Hey, don't worry about it. I just wanted to shake your hand. I mean, there I am sitting in a bar, you know, drunk, shooting off just words, you know. And then you come in, and you did it. You did it. I just talk about it, but you did
2: it. I mean, I mean, and what we really get to see is his married life, and we see, we see like the way he argues with his wife. We see, you know, that you know the or we've seen bits of the struggle that he's had with his daughter and how, you know, that's, you know, that's that's having such an immediate impact on everything that's happened with him, that's going on with him internally and externally. So to have this, this mook now just <laughs> holding him up on a pedestal and telling him what a service he did, ridding the world of a scumbag, how how else is he supposed to respond? You know, mm-hmm. like, it, like it, it's really easy to get sucked in by that kind of thing. And it's, I feel like it's it's almost like, the opposite of what we see from a lot of radicalization these days. Like, I feel like a lot of people who get uh, who get sucked in to Joe's kind of thinking often feel so desperately low and are almost made to then feel lower. Yeah, you know, they, they're made to they're made to feel like they are victims. They're made to feel like they're unworthy or unlovable. Yeah. whether it's yeah. whether it's from. You know, like like alt right organizations or like incel communities on the internet, and that the only, and they they come to feel like the only way they are anything is if they are a part of this larger group of people who are just as worthless as them or just as victimized as they feel. Horrible things come of it, and yeah. it's horrible to see it. It's horrible to expi- like to see people go through these things. But to but to watch it from this side, it's like okay, you see you you see some of the allure. You see, at least for Compton, like what's worthwhile about trying to approach these things even though he goes into it thinking i'm absolutely going to get blackmailed this guy's going to try to extort me because he knows what i did and instead he just he comes out he comes out of it thinking you know i am great mm-hmm. and so is this guy i think we're good i think they're both very lonely characters yes. yes and
0: somehow the universe aligned so that they could find each other even though they they do horrible things they they stick together throughout the rest of the film, uh, even when things go really, really poorly. Yes. Yeah. Which that's like they're bad people, but like you want them to make it as a a couple.
1: Yeah. You know, so this screenplay was nominated for an Oscar. It didn't win, but yeah. it it's those kind of of character developments and second act, you know, constraints in that really kind of like make you want to go one way but not the other that make this story work so well. And so what really kind of sends the third act into motion is Susan Sarandon's character escapes from the hospital. She goes to her parents' apartment lays down in their bedroom as they are coming home from an awkward dinner at Joe's house. But you can tell that Compton kind of had a good time. You know, Joe showed him his gun collection and told the, the wife, don't worry, this is a good guy. What he did was right, blah, blah, blah. And you can tell the wife is not pleased at all about it because, yeah you know, <laughs> no. it's like no, I uh, I guess we're social friends with these people now, and so as they're never having, mind that
2: Joe slapped Compton's wife's ass yeah, and yeah. you know all that.
1: <laughs> it was the 70s, man. So as as they're having that conversation, and uh, Compton is telling his wife about you know the crime that he committed, Susan Sarandon hears it from the other room, and so now there's that in the mix. So now there's another person that knows about the crime that was committed someone who's the last person in the world that should know. Compton doesn't really know how to deal with it. He gets up, he goes to work the next day. Joe calls him to hang out and he's like, I don't know if we should, man. Like my my daughter knows, someone knows. He's like, well, we got to find her. The best way we can find her is to get involved with her people. You got that bag of drugs, right? Let's go mix with this culture and someone will know her. Which, okay, to me that sounds like a crazy idea, but it gets them to point A to point B it's interesting that that's the route that he goes is
2: like this idea of kind of infiltrating. And I think he actually uses the word infiltrate at one point. Uh, Cause th- like that is like, I mean, that's legitimately something that happens. Like, I mean, maybe not in the case of like fathers trying to find their lost daughters, but in the case of like, law enforcement or like right-wing groups and left-wing groups trying to infiltrate each other like all the time that kind of like that kind of thing is a tactic that people use i highly doubt that it tends to go quite the way that it did well i think if you
0: have a a bucket of drugs
2: that's like you you can get into a lot of yeah yeah, yeah, that'll get you into a lot of parties. It, I, I'm immediately reminded of the time that a, a, a bunch of cops busted a drug ring only to find out that it was a bunch of undercover cops. Nice. Yeah, I good saw
1: that movie. Everybody. It was called Point Break. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the thing that's
0: frustrating about where this movie goes is you immediately see the hypocrisy of these two characters yeah. because they they have a really good time.
2: Yeah. Yeah, they 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 they're just blazed out of their minds
1: at the orgy. At the, the orgy, orgy <laughs> which that's how I'm saying it from now on. You know, it's like right, oh, I'm never pronouncing I'm, it any I'm other never way. Pronouncing it any other way. <laughs> but yeah, they infiltrate this group that, like you said, the the way they get in is with this bag of drugs. And here's the thing: it's like, yeah, these kids are just they want that free ride. They just want that free that free high. You got to give them some credit, man. They they weren't afraid to let these old dudes party with them you know that was some yeah. some hospitality to say the least i mean they went from you know we're going to try and sell these squares
2: some weed and see what happens to they said they're set they're they said they have what they have what they need maybe we should maybe we should we should learn a little bit more about that let's see what these old old dudes are all about
1: yeah and you know it's it's interesting the the most interesting part about this movie is like how Each act brings a major tone shift where, you know, the first one, like you said, it it almost felt like a kind of family drama. Then it goes into like this class warfare. And now we're into like this weird counterculture, almost LSD trip movie, like something Dennis Hopper or Peter Fonda would have made. You've got these two old squares, one super conservative, you know, almost, you know, ultra right wing guy. And then you've got the the more still conservative, maybe a little bit more liberal minded, white privileged professional. But in this room, none of that matters because they are getting high for the first time. They are trying sexually experiences with other people for the first time. Young people, they're having a good time. Like Joe's dancing, and it's the most awkward, disturbing dance I've ever seen in the film. <laughs> but it, yeah, it goes it goes to show like what happens at the end of that scene didn't happen. They probably would have woken up the next morning, yawned, and been like, "That was great," and then went back the next week and did it again. That's the way I think that would have gone.
2: Yeah, had they not had their shit stolen and then flipped out and started threatening people with violence. Yeah. Th- that could have ended up being a like a life altering experience for them to where they suddenly understand like the younger generation in a different light. I'm reminded of a scene from
0: Mad Men where Don Draper leaves a meeting he's supposed to be doing mad menning at <laughs> and, and ends up hanging out with like a young hippie girl yeah. and getting high.
1: And he's like, I'm never
0: leaving this pole ever again. Yeah.
1: And she's like, no, you got to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it was a very hard lesson for Joe to learn. I think it's probably one of the things that that might have set him off even more because he tells the girl that he had just had relations with that he wants to see her again. And she's like, no, it, it's, yep. it's that's not how yeah. it is. It's okay to not see anyone ever again. It's, it's what we do. And I think that kind of rejection confuses him more than insults him because it is still relatively new. The way I also see this movie, it's it's kind of like, oh, oh I, I'm yeah. getting this taste of life as I'm approaching the end of my life. And you know the decisions I made, and this culture wasn't here. This is all I get. I just get a taste. I don't get to be a part of it. Yeah, that's pretty, I think, life-changing and decision-altering for Peter Boyle's character.
2: He's also kind of directly confronted with like his own inadequacies a little yeah. bit too. He's just like, "Wow, that was super fast." Like, what or, like, hey, how about how about preliminaries? Like, <laughs> just a little bit of foreplay, my dude. Just like, I'm, like you have worn your way through your trial period of sexual liberation a yeah. little too fast.
1: And again, there's something kind of charming to that, which is disturbing. That's what makes this movie so great <laughs> to me. Is that. You can find such like charming moments in this disturbing story about disturbing people and then you kind of like hate yourself for it. it's like oh don't make me like this guy don't yeah. make me chuckle at his little jokes or his inadequacies like it's it's charming but he's terrible you know
2: <laughs> Yeah like you don't like you don't want to like him but he like he wins you over in some moments
1: And then we go to like the very part where there is no turning back where they've essentially tortured and beaten the two girls that were left there by their compatriots to deal with these old guys to get the location of this commune where they probably took the drugs where all the hippies hang out. Which brings us to like this denouement where Compton and Joe show up to this commune, this ranch house, armed to the teeth. And it's like, well, you're just going there to get the drugs, right? You're not there to do more than that, right? We just want the drugs in our wallets. That's all we really want, right? Let's just say it it lives up to its bleak ending that the 70s were so known for. So to talk about the ending now and talk about the film a little bit. So we'd already talked about at the beginning that when Peter Boyle watched one of these screenings, he was shocked that what they did at the end got so much cheer and support when in his mind, he was making a film more of like a lesson or a moral tale. I don't think in his mind thought that he was going to be making an action thriller that was going to get people riled up for the wrong reasons. And because of that, he decided to not make any violent films for a while. He could have been Popeye Doyle in The French Connection. He turned it down. You know, about five, six years later, he did do Taxi Driver, but his character in that is more of like that pacifist character that kind of mm-hmm. tries to bring uh, Bickle down. But, but yeah, it was, it was a shock to him, and it really changed the way he chose roles for a long, long time.
3: Well, when the done movie done. first opened, it opened at a little yeah. theater on Times Square called The Embassy in the middle of July 1970, and uh, the hot summer... Night, they decided to keep the picture open 24 hours. They, they kept showing it all around the clock And I went down there to see it with a friend of mine and snuck into the audience and uh, Heard the audience yelling back at the screen Damn. that uh, bothered me mm-hmm. and, and and when people would come up to me and say hey Joe, I'd say I'm not Joe blah blah blah, but of course
2: I'm not surprised because especially considering like that last frame, the last moment before the credits actually start to roll. If you're laughing up through that point, like I have to imagine, like you see what happens there, what, and how do you not just stop and like kind of sit with that for a minute and think like, what, what did I find enjoyable about that? Mm -hmm. What did I find? What did I find like laughable about that? Given how that, like how that just turned out.
0: If something I had made, were to cause violence when what I was trying to say was we don't need violence,
1: I would be really upset. Yeah. yeah. And I can only think what kind of uncomfortable setting that theatrical experience would have been for a lot of people. Because let's not forget that this was a sleeper hit. It was yeah. it had a budget of barely over a hundred thousand dollars in 1970s dollars. And at the end of the day, pulled in like $27 million. Like, it was a hit. It took a That's while to a, get an
2: there. an absurd gap. Like,
1: that... That Holy shit.
0: <laughs> it's yeah. bonkers. That's why I'm like, how have people not heard about this film? Like, it did really
1: well. I think Absurdly it did, well. It did really well, but because it took so long to get there, it didn't have all mm-hmm. of that hype right at the beginning. It didn't have, like, all the posters and the marquees. American Beauty was not a huge hit right off the bat. It kind of took a while to get people talking about it and then they get bigger and bigger releases. You know, it's kind of like yeah. that thing, that kind of sleeper hit, but, um, yeah, it had
2: to build that groundswell.
1: but like, just to think, like I was saying earlier, if, if you were in your twenties watching this film and if you were in your forties, watching it in the same theater, that, that divide, uh, that political divide, that morality divide, also just the different definitions of what entertainment is. Like, were you watching this film to see people get shot? Or were you watching this film to see like a character drama? We still deal with issues of like that today in films. It's it's truly
2: staggering to me, just like the 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 generational parallels presented in this film and like the way they play out and like the conclusion that they come to in in those final moments compared to all of the generational bickering and generational squabbling and, and conflict that we see today. It's just it's so wild to think that like like the baby boomers were in the position that like us and gen z are in now back yeah. then compared to like compared to like the greatest generation or the silent generation like to, to just kind of see that entire dynamic copied and pasted (laughs) like several several decades later it feels insane it feels absolutely bonkers
1: and yet here we are (laughs) here we are and and here's you know now it's time for me to like jump on a soapbox for a 2nd and let you guys do yours too but this this film i mean we're talking about a time where everyone was getting their news off of tv and newspapers so ideas and let's say Racist thoughts, insecurities about your government, those were all shared in places like bars or the dinner table or maybe on the assembly line at work. But now we've got Twitter. Now we've got Facebook and we've got a multitude of so-called news channels that are mostly just op-ed pieces that are really just kind of changing people's ideas and political behaviors so where in this film Joe, we're seeing like one character and how it's affected the other character's life. We are now living in a world where we're surrounded by Joes. Our uncle's a Joe. Our brother's a Joe. Our boss at work is a Joe, and that scares the shit out of me. Yeah, it's genuinely horrifying. Like to, to go
2: from, like, to go to go from having. Like, clear, identifiable, like, vetted news sources to a complete erasure of media literacy and a complete erasure of what a fact is, almost. Like, to just just taking what any schlub on, on the internet says at face value and turning that into a culture war issue that then evolves into that uh, <laughs> then evolves into actual violence in the real world. I, like To to go back to, uh, to go back to pride for a, uh, for a moment, we just had, we just had a whole bunch of Nazis get arrested in the back of a U-Haul on their way to go harass a pride event
1: in, in Idaho. Yeah. Right up. And, me. and they, they, most of them are from Salt Lake city.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They were, yeah, they were all from like the, like the area surrounding, surrounding you there, which is horrific. and, a lot of that got spurred by like one account by that libs of TikTok or whatever account mm-hmm. that singled out like a, a a drag story time or whatever that was gonna take place yeah. at this Pride event that was going to be like the lightning rod for them to go and attack.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It is genuinely mind-boggling, infuriating, and pants-pissingly terrifying. <laughs> that this can happen all it's in such rapid succession and unchecked almost unchecked. like so much could have gone wrong in that exact example where, I mean, like the cops could have sided with the, with, with the Patriot front guys, as they have in the past, yeah. uh, the, the, the person who called upon spotting them could have been too afraid to act uh no there could have been no response and things just got went through as were intended like the de- the degree to which those kind of ideologies like have been embraced and warped and twisted like from joe on is like i mean from like the character of joe on is truly
0: bewildering it, it's frustrating that you have a movie like joe being made in 1970 that's saying like crying for help like this is the problem we need to fix it and 52 years later we're still screaming the same
2: message mm-hmm. there's a moment in joe before they actually like solidify the plan to uh to infiltrate the the group of hippies uh, where they find that poster of Richard Nixon oh yeah yeah uh that it says, says like would you buy a car from this man And it's just like clearly like no, not in a million years. (laughs) Like Joe's response is, "What kind of disrespecting disrespecting our president president like that? You can't buy a
0: used car from the president. Who can you buy him from? (laughs) Yeah, and like this
2: happened before. This is what two years before Watergate, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Like like to watch that now and like 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 you know like we all know how that turns out. We all know what like what Richard Nixon truly was (laughs) like." Yeah, to see all of that sped up fashion with Trump is
0: yeah, yeah but <sighs> he didn't get the villainization uh, in the same way that Nixon did.
1: That's true, which is so he, weird to me. But that's another story for another day. Like, right that that one yeah. is that one hasn't even finished playing out yet. Like that's yeah, we're part. We're, still, <laughs> we're still we're right still we're still mired movie. in it. Chapter one. We were in chapter one. You know who knows how many chapters there are of that story.
2: Right. Yeah. like That's the, that's the thing is like, like, we're still, we're still actively living all <laughs> of that. Like we don't have the benefit of, or we, I mean, we have some benefit of hindsight, uh, despite so many people just refusing to see it. Yeah, <laughs> But you have to wonder like, how is history going to actually treat these moments once they're done? Like if, if, like, if, if we, get, if we get past these things, we're able to, we're able to apply a le- like that, that historical lens to them in the future. Like when we get to like 2070, whatever,
1: well here's a question for you. Like, let's let's tinfoil hat for a second. You know, this is a very obscure film now. You know, like I would I don't think I would have known about it had I not watched that documentary. It probably would have popped up somewhere. It's hardly streaming anywhere. It's it's obscure. It's hard to find on, on DVD yeah. and Blu-ray even. <laughs> Do you think that there may have been at some point, maybe some films that they decided were just a little bit too on the nose? And politically stimulating, that they're like, you know what? Let's let this one, let's let this one rest in the box for a minute because it might get people excited, you know. Now, obviously, there are some films that are too high profile, like JFK. You can't bury that one. That's too recent. It's too on the nose. But there are a lot of films like like this one, and like I think being there with uh, Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers. You know, yeah. kind of like that whole, "I can an idiot be a political figure" kind of thing. There is there is a lot to be said about films that I think made people think too much that just don't play a lot anymore. And it makes me wonder, is that is that contrived? Is that something that someone actually did?
0: We even kind of hmm. talked about this on the last episode that we guested on, where the focus of storytelling shifted away uh, from the thoughtful films uh, following Heaven's Gate. Mm -hmm. Um, with the fall of the new hollywood directors you got a lot more popcorn flicks type
2: stuff and not that those like don't have a message or don't have anything to say but it's i think it's taken time to be able to effectively work those messages in or in in some cases to even really truly recognize those messages like when you like For anybody that's going back and just watching a lot of what came out around that era now, for the first time, it might be, you know, maybe it's clearer, maybe, or maybe it's not, who knows? It's, you know, I just just know that like when I initially watched a lot of like, like Terminator 2 or Robocop or anything like that, I I was a kid, I wasn't, I wasn't picking up on the on like the satire or like the cultural commentary of shit that's going on. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, you know, it's now a meme, like the the whole Kyle Reese instinctively lying to a cop mm. moment in <laughs> in Terminator Two. Right. Uh and like all of like the consumerist, like capitalist satire going on in like the advertisements and Robocop and whatnot. Like you like uh, like it's all pretty obvious unless you're like you you don't have the media literacy to like pick up on it you don't have you don't have that language you don't have that knowledge and I don't know I feel like so many so many films and filmmakers have moved away from that i mean hell even like if you look at the the, the reboot of Robocop like the re, the remake of it it strips so much of those aspects of it out I, yeah
0: I don't know that filmmakers as an entirety have moved away from it. So just no. studios aren't pushing it like they would in the seventies, mm-hmm. uh, late sixties and seventies. And that's only because they don't make money like they would then.
2: And what it means for a film to make money at this point is so different because mm-hmm. we have, we have like this whole slate of movies that are constantly making hundreds of millions yeah, of dollars yeah. or in, or in the case of, you know, a few of Marvel's efforts, billions, billions,
0: the, Mid-budget films are now, those stories are now indie films.
1: Yeah. And, and I've got plenty to say about that. Not on this show because I've already yeah. talked about it on a few different shows. But let's kind of finish up with, like, the legacy of Joe. So, like, it makes me happy to know that this film is a standalone because when Golan Globus bought Canon, one of the first things they wanted to do was make a sequel to this film. Oh, no. Oh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. You no. can only imagine what that would have been. Like, we all saw the jump from Death Wish 1 to Death Wish 2 when Canon got its hands on it. So they actually pitched a sequel to Peter Boyle, which would have definitely turned it into more of an exploitation-type mm. character, really going hard in the paint with that kind of, like, ultra-conservatism to a violent state that Joe would go to in the 80s. Like, what would Joe be doing in the 80s? Well, shit. So Nothing lucky, good. lucky for us that didn't happen. Although again, that multiverse idea has me intrigued of like, what would that look like? What would the campy, overly violent version of this look like? Because here's the thing, we recognize success differently now. You know, all the de- mm-hmm. all the Death Wish sequels failed financially But they are immortalized in their camp and in their over-the-top and just gratuitous violence and nonsense. They're cult favorites now. They're cult classics. In being so, they've kind of ruined the message of the first film. And I wonder what a Hmm. sequel to this would have been like and what it would have meant to the message of the original I mean, look at like, Rocky, like again, Rocky Ooh. five versus Rocky one, you know, yeah. <laughs> there, there's a lot of that there too.
0: For me, it's more the Rambo series.
1: Yeah. Oh, watching God.
0: first blood oh, and then where man. it goes from there. Yeah. That's an excellent example. Um, my suggestion is just stop watching after the first one.
1: <laughs> I mean, you can, <laughs> but part two is really cool. <laughs> no, I mean, part two is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm
0: so glad Peter Boyle did not take them up on that offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for
2: real. Just I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that he, 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 stuck to his guns on that one. Just, I mean, what's
0: interesting for me about the movie is not the last 10 minutes where it's, you know, an exploitation film. So for the entire, for a sequel, that's only those last 10 minutes, but just longer and probably more violent, it would be,
2: it would look so different
1: it would. I think the directed. I think the important. Probably.
2: Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> I think the important thing to note about that last ten minutes of exploitation in Joe, though, is that it's faced with resistance.
1: Yes, there there like, is a consciousness to character decisions, and that that actually creates conflict between the two friends. Now, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and that didn't have to be there. That really didn't have to be there, and that's why it's a good movie, and that's why it's an excellent. Script with some amazing storytelling. So I'm just going to go out and say, listeners, if you haven't seen this, you know, it's available to rent on streaming, and I think it's on Pluto TV with ads. But this is definitely worth a watch, especially if you want to expand your knowledge of the political mindset of the late 60s and early 70s and how films like that were portrayed. Because there is no way this film could be made today without catering to one political ideology or the other. And that's what kind of makes this film brilliant is that it kind of swims in the middle and leaves it up to the audience member to decide which course of action was the most acceptable for better or worse for better or worse.
2: Yeah. It's, it's absolutely an approach that I, I I don't think would play today. No, like if, if if a modern studio were to try to take a crack at something like that, it, or it would require an extremely deft hand. <laughs> well, you
1: know? guys, thank you so much for talking about this film and bringing it back to my attention because it's been a long time since I've seen it, like probably 10 years. What what better pair of, of minds to sit and have this conversation <laughs> with, for sure. So um, when can we expect season two of Derazzle to start back up? Uh, the official
2: uh, premiere date is July 5th. Uh, we'll be back with an episode on the Emoji Movie.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. You're starting fresh.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <maybe out. laughs> oh, God. Yeah. We, diving right in. We, we just sat down and watched it um, the week before we watched Joe, actually. And my God.
1: One to one ratio. It's like the same. Exactly. So, yeah. It's yeah.
2: actually weird. Somebody did attempt to make this movie again. But as a cartoon, <laughs> terrible decision.
1: <laughs> right. That's really exciting. And um hopefully I can jump back into one of those because I had such a fun time on that last one. Oh, and for sure. Yeah, you guys, I just I'm really happy that you stuck in the game because there are some of my cinematic podcasting friends who have taken like extended breaks or might not even be in the game anymore. And it's just really great to to have a show like yours that I see is growing its listeners, growing its audience, getting more creative with its content. And I'm I'm actually kind of sad. I'm in a depression state since there have been no real episodes. You guys keep throwing these right <laughs> leftover episodes at me, and that's fine. You know, everyone likes a cutscene episode of like Seinfeld or Friends, and the Drazzels was fine. I guess it'll hold me over.
0: <laughs> well, well, we have plenty of garbage for you. Just. You'll see. We're
2: chock full of garbage
0: over here. <laughs> it's an entire new season for me to try to get us canceled.
1: <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> if, if the 50 shades of gray episode didn't do it, then I don't know what would. <laughs> well, oh, just
2: it, wait, just wait till the, wait till the sequel to that one. Oh God, Oh God.
1: I forgot we agreed to do that. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and everyone listen to D They're everywhere. Like I'm everywhere. And you guys have a website, right?
2: We do. Yes, derazzle.com. It's pretty
0: stupid. You should go check it out. Yeah. Especially the cat page.
1: The cat page, I, uh, the the cat page. I forgot about that. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> well, have a good night, and we'll talk to you later.